The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I'm Lori Silly and I do family practice. I work in Northeast Philadelphia. I've been in family practice for about 10 years now. I have one partner that I work with, so he's made in the office this morning while I'm here. And you'll find her in the phone book under Dukowski, because that's... Uh, I use my maiden name professionally because I wasn't married until after I completed my training, so... What's your maiden name? Dukowski. I'm John Silly. I'm a thoracic surgeon. I work at the Cooper Hospital uh, University Medical Center in Camden, and I've uh, been in practice there for just over six years doing uh, cardiac and thoracic surgery. I have two partners who are manning the bulwark this morning. Um, a couple of things about medical ethics. I think that if you boil it down to simple terms, you can get uh, a good basis for, or I, I find a good basis for a way to approach everything. If you remember that, uh, you know, and it really is very simple, if you love God first, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do to you. And that, you know, that sounds pretty simplistic, but if you look at every situation that you're faced with where you have to make, uh, where you have a choice that you can make as opposed to something that you need to do uh, because of things that have happened in the past and you're uh, getting down a road that you sometimes can't stop. But if you look at situations that you have some control over from how does this affect the other person, how would I want it to be treated if I was in this situation? And I, I think that makes a good basis to start with. <clears throat> the other thing is that they tell you uh, early on in medical school uh, this Latin phrase, uh, primum non nocera or nocera, depending upon whether your Latin has got hard C's or soft C's in it. But it's first do no harm. And if you look at that from a uh, perhaps a humanistic point of view, uh, don't don't harm the patient and uh, or the family, then you can bring in your Christian uh, viewpoint also, which is really the same thing. So there's no there's no dichotomy at all there between science and religion uh, in, in in the basis. Situations, if you let them run long enough, always become or very often become obvious as to what one should do. Uh, the the moral, the ethical thing, often is not difficult to decide when you get at the end of a road. The problem is that at the beginning of the road, nobody knows what's going to be down at the end, and that's that's the very that's the very most difficult uh, place uh, you know, to try to deal with. Because when you start and take a person uh, who is perhaps a reasonably healthy appearing uh, person in their 70s, say, and you, they come in with a particular problem, if you go down and you 
get sort of pushed down the garden path. Well, let's do this. Uh, you know, we want them to get better, uh, but they've got this problem. Let's try to diagnose it. And sometimes you get down to where the chances of being able to improve their outlook are not very great. You know, maybe 50-50. Now, 50-50 is uh, some people think that those are, uh, you know, good odds. If I get a 50 percent chance of getting better, uh, you know, let me try. But people often fail to realize that uh, that 50-50 chance, uh, statistically, is that there's a 50 percent chance that they're going to die or be worse from what you do, and that makes a difference when you. You take your grandmother or your mother and uh, you know, start to do testing to find out where you want to go. Another thing that uh, enters nowadays especially is uh, the patient's desire for self-determination and what informed consent really is. What is a consent to treat and how long, how, how broad is that consent? It used to be that physicians were very paternalistic, and in the last 15 years, they've been accused of being too paternalistic and not allowing patients to have enough uh, self-determination. And a problem, I see, I see a problem with that in the same sense that the educational system, uh, the students want to you know, run the schools. They want to tell you how they should be, how they should be educated. Patients don't know enough to to make informed decisions on many cases, even if you tell them absolutely everything, especially if you tell them absolutely everything, they have, uh, they're overwhelmed with, uh, with facts and you can't expect that uh, a person can deal with all, all those uh, problems. The other, uh, or another problem with the paternalistic attitude is that uh, you impose your own viewpoint and what you think is right and wrong uh, on the patient. Now, uh, if the patient is a Christian, you can talk to them from a different point of view than you can if they're not a Christian. And sometimes that's a great benefit. Uh, it certainly makes it easier. It's tough to tell a patient who's uh, not a Christian uh, about that they've got a, you know, a good chance of dying from what's about to happen. And they've got a good chance of dying if nothing is done. And then you know, you're, it calls into question, what is your role as, uh, as a Christian to evangelize uh, under those circumstances? And that's a, that's a very difficult thing, and I don't have a good answer for it. Uh, I, I find it uh, difficult and most times really impossible to evangelize under those circumstances because I think, I don't know whether it's fair or not, to feel that way, but I, you know, there's undue pressure, I think, placed on a person uh, you know, to agree with what you say. Uh, you know, under those circumstances, you know, it's like, uh, you know, why not agree with what a person says if their uh, your chances are slim that uh, you're going to get through something? You know, sure, I'll agree with anything. Why not? It's kind of scoffable of you. Yeah, that's exactly you. right. Yeah, <laughs> be closed, be healed, be saved. Yeah. It, it just doesn't work. Um, and when you start working all these things around to, together, it, the big questions nowadays are who's going to live, who's going to die, and how are you going to spend limited resources to take care of the people uh, 
that exist. To, to go into that for just a second, um, if you start down the treatment path with somebody and you get to uh, an end point that they're going to be uh, on some kind of a chronic treatment for it may be weeks, months, or years, then should you, should you start down that path that probably will get there? There, there are countries that don't treat uh, people for certain diseases over certain ages. It's almost impossible in uh, the United Kingdom to get heart surgery if you're over 65 because there are plenty of people under that age uh, who need to be taken care of, plus they have a much more limited uh, amount of resources than we do in this country. And in this country, uh, Medicare, which starts picking up at 65, uh, is by far the biggest uh, insurer of patients who have uh, cardiac surgery. So where where do you draw the line? When should you stop? When should you put somebody on uh, a kidney machine? When should you stop uh, treating them with a kidney machine? Should you do a kidney transplant on a person who is uh, more elderly, or should you do it on a younger person? If you have two people that are equal at the same time, then, well, usually the younger person is going to get it. But uh, sometimes you don't have, uh, you can look a little harder to find a younger person, but uh, you know, maybe this elderly person relatively uh, you know, really wants the thing badly. Maybe they have uh, more redeeming social value than a, uh, you know, if you will, than a person who has uh, perhaps done nothing constructive in their life Perhaps should an alcoholic get a liver transplant? That's the uh, yeah, that's a big uh, uh, deal these days. Lots of those those particular ethical issues uh, I don't deal with uh, specifically, and uh, uh, the points of view that I take on those tend to be uh, not considered to be politically correct <laughs> because uh, I have a I have a hard time with wanting to uh, spend a lot of resources when there are such limited resources on treating uh, people and diseases that uh, have little redeeming social value. And one of, the, one of the big problems these days is what to do with patients that have AIDS. Worse than that is what to do with the babies that uh, through no fault of their own uh, are AIDS infected, HIV positive when they're born. Not all those, uh, not every child of an infected mother will develop or will be HIV positive and develop AIDS. But uh, it's a big question as to what to do with, uh, with those children. What to do with babies whose mothers uh, took cocaine, uh, the crack babies. There are lots of them in the city hospitals in Philadelphia. They uh, suck up resources like crazy because they're born premature they're, they're very sick in the intensive care unit. They may be there for weeks or months. And in fact, when they're big enough and well enough to leave, there may be no place to send them. So there are babies who are in a hospital uh, at hospital rates for sometimes a couple of years if their mother doesn't want them while they're trying to get them placed. And it's not easy to place a child who has uh, psychological difficulties and who may have uh, physical difficulties and what's going to happen when you, since these kids are 
retarded to an extent. They're psychologically uh, retarded and uh, physically retarded also. When you're going to put them into school, you know, in six years, and then you're going to have to take care of them, you're going to try to educate them for uh, 18 years uh, through high school, what's going to happen then? How many of them have the capacity to do the the tasks and do things that are necessary to be useful members of society. Now, granted, uh, some people who are have had strokes and are uh, barely more than able to sit up are useful members of society. Uh, retarded children uh, are useful members of society. They may bring great joy to their parents uh, and to other people. They may, you know, teach them a lot of things uh, psychologically, and philosophically. But if you're talking about uh, and it's, it's sort of crass, but if you're talking about the what the cost of all this is, uh, it's tremendous, and who is going to pay for it? And that, it unfortunately boils down with such high technology as to who is going to fund it at this point. Because there is almost nobody that you can't keep alive a little longer. There's almost nobody that you can't do something for. If one looks at intensive care patients, or at any, at any person, the majority of resources spent on a person's medical care are spent in the last six months of their life. And it's a tremendous uh, proportion of that. And in fact, there are studies that are being done now to try to evaluate patients when they enter a disease process to find out what the likelihood is that they're going to get better. And should you put a patient in the intensive care unit based on what they have, uh, what Somebody thinks, well, gee, they got to go to the ICU. They're they're really sick. If you can prove that uh, you know 95% of patients that are like this with this disease die in the intensive care unit, whether or not they're there for a week or a month, then should you put uh, 100 patients with that disease in there for the five patients that will uh, survive? If you put a patient in an intensive care unit then you take up a bed that perhaps somebody who is, quote, more viable uh, won't have. Once you get a patient there, it's hard to kick them out. So the, the tough choices, and you know, we joke about, well, that's why they pay us the big bucks, but the tough choices have to be made in the beginning. They're unpopular choices, but I think it's incumbent upon uh, physicians, uh, and especially on Christian physicians, to make uh, tough choices based on uh, a good ethical system, but also based on, and I think that takes into what the greatest good for the greatest number of people is. If you have a perfect world when everybody can be taken care of to the maximum, there will be no resource problems, then you treat everybody exactly the same and uh, there, there wouldn't be any problems. There would be an unlimited number of spaces to put patients in. And it's just not like that. There's a limited amount of resources, and we have to deal with that. The public has to deal with that, and the public uh, doesn't have any good answers. They want to say, well, uh, you know, let's make a law. And uh, the legislators, well, let's make rules, let's make laws. The doctors say, we don't want laws, we don't want rules, because we, uh, we find it hard to abide by them, because they're special cases. And then the lawyers say, uh, well, you can make the decisions, but if you make the wrong one, we're going to tell the family that uh, that you did, and that uh, you know, so you're you're open to uh, you know, to litigation. That's very difficult. All kinds of difficult problems. 
that uh, come together. And what I said in the beginning, it's easy. You know, love God first, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, it is, but it isn't. It's very hard to put those things uh, into a practical, uh, into practical terms. I was called uh, at about six o'clock this morning by the uh, doctors in the, uh, the trauma unit. We have a very large, uh, active one. A 22-year-old girl who was in an auto accident who is uh, quadriplegic, and she may be able to shrug her shoulders, perhaps wiggle her thumbs, but that's uh, all the better she's ever going to get. Now, that person, uh, you know, if her neck was broken this much higher, then she would uh, you know, end up being on a, a respirator for, uh, for the rest of her life. Maybe this uh, girl won't, but what will what will be the outcome? What will be the, uh, for her life? Her mother broke her neck just a little bit, I don't know if it was higher or lower, in the same, uh, uh, the same auto accident. So there's two people in, in one family who are, uh, they're not hurt badly enough to die, but they, uh, you know, they're severely uh, injured. Uh, the chances of them being you know, functional members of society is very, very slim. There are people that are worse off than that. We see people who have, uh, I don't have to deal with as much, but there are people who have fractures called a hangman's fracture for an obvious reason. That's why when they hang people, they break their neck there, and that's why they die. But there are people who are alive, who come in alive with those kind of injuries. What's the appropriate thing to do uh, for those? By and large, the feeling around the, uh, the country is that those people uh, should be allowed to die because you can't you can't save everybody. Uh, those people are basically a head preparation. They can't breathe. They can't talk. Their brain's alive, but that's it. They can't ever move again. They can't feel anything. And uh, you know, forget their brain's okay. I mean, it's not like they got brain death. But uh, the rest of their body is, uh, is effectively dead. If a person, well, just you know, I said brain death. You know, the diagnosis of death is an ethical dilemma uh, these days. In fact, the state of New Jersey just passed a law that says that uh, if you, uh, we will accept the definition of death as brain death, unless you have some religious conviction against that. In which case. Uh, it doesn't apply, uh, which I think is you know, kind of interesting. But there are uh, there are religions, mostly Eastern religions. Um, I think uh, Buddhism, you know, perhaps that uh, I don't deal with that at all. But that was one of the things that was mentioned by the people uh, talking about that that won't accept that kind of a definition. And we have you know, we've had patients uh, in the in the hospital who with uh, head injuries that were dead by the definition that we all accept, but uh, they were Buddhist. And so they didn't accept that. And as long as they were breathing, be it on a ventilator or not, as long as the heart was beating, they were alive. And the family would hear none of it, that uh, this person wasn't uh, still there. You know, under those circumstances, what do you do? Somebody else that needs that ventilator. Somebody else needs that bed. Somebody who is alive or who has a chance for being. 
Where, where do you go? The answer to those things is, I don't know all the time. I just try to do what I think is appropriate in each individual situation. And if you look at it from that point of view, you don't get burned very often. Patients will pretty much do what their physician tells them to over the course of time. So you, by developing a, an appropriate relationship with the family ahead of time, and even during a patient, during a, a loved one's uh, severe illness, you can, by talking with them, most times get them to help or at least participate in decisions that uh, will affect the outcome or that may affect the outcome. For instance, if I have a patient who is uh, not doing well and I expect that they're going to need to have a dialysis if their kidneys have failed, uh, it depends a great deal on uh, the patient's age and how they were ahead of time in what kind of things I'll tell the family, which way I'll push them. Now, I don't lean on them real hard to begin with, but you, when you talk to somebody and give them information about things that they know nothing, you, you shade what they think by the information that you give them. Just like when you're taught in school, uh, your teachers can teach you from one point of view or another. And people can come around, or often will come around, to the point of view that whoever talks to them uh, wants them to, given enough gentle coaxing. Now, if I choose, you know, is it is it right for me to do that? You know, I I don't know. Uh, I think that as I look at that, I see well. What's you know, how do I see the interactions in this family? How do I see this person getting better? and uh, recovering to what state? Is this person going to need to be on this uh, treatment permanently? And to take somebody who is in their middle 70s and their wife is in their middle 70s and they don't have any real support system, to take a person like that and start them on dialysis, uh, knowing that uh, the chances are that they're going to need it forever, is that right? Some people do that. And you can always dialyze a patient one more time. And if you're getting paid for that, uh, people will dialyze a patient just because uh, the government's going to pay them for it. I have a hard time with that. I think that that's uh, inappropriate. But if you start a treatment, can you withdraw it? It's a lot easier to not start something than it is to withdraw it once you've started. And those kind of uh, decisions from a personal point of view, I find to be difficult, and I find that the best way to deal with that is to uh, try to be very detached from it. Uh, I can't, uh, I find that when I become emotionally involved with uh, families, it's tough to, uh, it's tough sometimes to talk to them uh, you know, without, uh, or from a detached point of view. If you talk to them simply from a detached point of view, they tend not to, uh, they think that you're here and they're here and there's a great gulf between and that you're just uh, you're talking at them, not to them. And I don't have a good answer for that. Just how many times are you detached? Uh, well, <laughs> no. 
Yeah, that's that's when I get home. I can, <laughs> can detach enough uh, when I have to, so I don't cry with the family. But uh, uh, you know, some, well, yeah, I know. Sometimes it happens, but that's not bad either. I think in some ways it's probably a good thing. Patients should know that their doctors are human too. I think it's a big benefit to that. But you know, that's just uh, a broad overview of uh, a lot of the different problems that, uh, you know, that we face. I face a different set of problems in what I do than uh, perhaps uh, doctors who treat patients with AIDS do. Rarely, I don't suppose more than once or twice, have I ever had to deal with a patient who had uh, real AIDS. You know, a few patients that are uh, infected uh, with a virus, but by and large, doing uh, heart surgery like I do, there aren't too many people that actually have AIDS, that uh, or there's none uh, that actually have AIDS that uh, I've been called upon to take care of. So I don't have to deal with that. Lori in her practice uh, has, to, has patients that, uh, not too many I guess that have AIDS, but one or two. And it's a different, uh, how do you tell somebody, oh by the way, how do you, how do you tell them that they've uh, got something like that? And it depends on the, your viewpoint as to how to tell them, what to tell them. How should they, how should they be treated? You treat a person differently who's a, uh, a hemophiliac who's gotten AIDS than uh, a person who's a drug abuser. Or a person who's gotten it, uh, the guy who got it from a blood transfusion uh, differently from a person who uh, you know, may be homosexual. From a, from a Christian point of view, it's hard to, uh, I find it, not difficult to feel sympathy for a person who's uh, ill, but I have a hard time uh, generating a lot of sympathy for people who get a serious uh, fatal disease doing something that uh, I think is uh, deviant and uh, sinful, and despite the fact that the, uh, the psychiatric diagnosis uh, book these days doesn't consider homosexuality to be anything more than an alternative lifestyle. I think that from a Christian point of view, one you know, has to look at it in, in another way. Uh, one doesn't have to practice the disease or the, the, the problem is the practice, uh, not, the, not necessarily the fact that one is homosexual. Because I, I think that you can probably, you can make reasonable cases for some genetic or uh, environmental factors that lead a person into uh, that kind of a lifestyle or kind of a situation. Uh, there are too many similarities appearances and in attitudes and in affect uh, in kids that and adults that are homosexual to say that it's uh, you know purely a, a choice that uh, you know, they made a choice to sin and that's uh, you know, what they're doing I think that the, the choice the, the sin is the practice and not necessarily the uh, the disease if you will or the uh, uh, the psychosocial things that make a person homosexual as opposed to heterosexual. I don't know. That's a whole different, uh, it's a whole area that 
it's politically incorrect to talk about that too, because uh, it's just uh, if you if you looked in uh, out in the rest of the world, it's it's all right. Well, as a Christian, I can't say that it's all right. Nonetheless, how are you going to deal with people who uh, who have AIDS? You well, you, you deal with uh, people in your office. Uh, with patients, uh, with kids who are having uh, intercourse who are not uh, using condoms, and that's uh, you can't stop uh, you can't stop that from happening. And you can't if you impose your own viewpoint that th this is this is wrong, you shouldn't do this. Well, that's about where you lost them because you can't um, you can't expect that the non-Christian world is going to believe what you as a Christian say. That's uh, the Bible tells you that uh, don't expect that uh, people are going to you know, do what you tell them to because they're not. I, the position that uh, Dr. Coop was in as a Surgeon General, uh, the position on uh, the use of condoms and the safe sex practices and all that, uh, had evangelicals up in arms about how could he say these things? Uh, how could he not just condemn uh, premarital, extramarital and, uh, sex, things like that? Well, his answer, I think, was very good. He said, I'm a Surgeon General for the whole the whole of the country, not for one particular group. And from a public health point of view, you have to say and do things that while they may not be your own particular uh, viewpoint, uh, have to be uh, generalized for the populace, because you have to recognize the populace is not a, it's not a Christian, uh, we're not a Christian nation. The, the veneer gets thinner and thinner all the time. And people won't do, and can't be expected to do, uh, what is we consider right from a Christian moral viewpoint. The world is not that way, and I think we can we can try to change that, but you can't expect that uh, you're going to be able to change it uh, to a great extent. Uh, I think that uh, if you look at the uh, the Bible, you find that at the ends. At the end, it gets worse and worse, not better and better. So why should we expect that uh, more and more people are going to become Christians and that things will get better as the, uh, as the world draws to a close? I think that's a good analogy to uh, that uh, the way that Coop handled it would be the seatbelt. I mean, Christians, if they had their way, would, would make everybody a perfectly safe driver. Well, we don't live in that kind of world. So, since everybody is not a safe driver, what secondary measures do you take? Well, you seatbelts can help. I mean, you, you know, uh, it's it's only uh, a uh, an extra safety device. But it, uh, given the fact that we live in a world that doesn't do things right, um, you still have to create order. You still have to have remedies for things. I think that's what he was trying to do, and as you say, it was badly misunderstood. Some of the evangelicals took him to mean that it's okay to be promiscuous, which is the last thing on his mind. He was just saying, once you have this kind of society, which we do, unfortunately, then can we prevent further um, evil? But th that was a that was a tremendous, uh, you know, I'm sure a tremendous. Moral dilemma for him to uh, 
to decide, you know, what is what is my primary responsibility? Here I'm a, you know, I'm a Christian, uh, you know, I'm a Christian first, but that doesn't mean that my goal in the world is not to make it better for uh, and safer for everybody, uh, including non-Christians. Uh, when he was Surgeon General, uh, uh, President or Coop was asked to uh, yeah, Reagan's administration. He was uh, asked to write a report that said that uh, abortion was harmful to uh, to women in uh, later years, uh, psychologically and physically and all that. And he studied it and studied it and uh, couldn't write the report like that because he said while he thought that it was probably true, he couldn't find uh, he couldn't find the the evidence uh, that it was. And he thought that it was uh, inappropriate to make uh, statements which would have been very uh, very well thought of by many people uh, that he just couldn't uh, he couldn't back up and uh, that's another you know another thing that he you know, tough choices that uh, that somebody in a position of uh, real power had to make I know that in the uh, coming weeks you're going to talk about uh, genetic engineering that sort of stuff, uh, abortion, those uh, those kind of ethical issues. Um, so I don't want to you know, get too far afield from uh, just the, you know, the personal uh, viewpoint. Okay, what's your wisdom? Uh, you know, do you have anything that you want to uh, be close? No, my practice is a lot different than John's. I, I just do family practice. I don't do any hospital work. So I'm dealing just with patients and family members on a one-to-one -one basis most of the time. Um, I, I struggle with uh, teenagers that are uh, having sexual intercourse. Um, I let them know that I'm a Christian. They know that once a year I go away with my high school group for a short-term mission trip. And um, I'm able to share my faith a little bit more than John is, I think. That's fair to say. Um, but the, the young kids, it's really a problem because, you know, their friends are doing it, the peer pressure, it's socially acceptable. Um, Doogie Hauser lost his virginity on TV the other week. I mean, I don't follow the show, but that just crushed me because it's, you know, saying like, it's okay. And apparently Doogie Hauser is now 18, but I think, you know, 13 and 14 year old kids are watching this and, you know, they're seeing that it's okay. And I, I tell the girls that, you know, um, I think the behavior that you're doing is wrong and um, you know that perhaps you should wait and even though you've crossed the line at this point you can go back to celibacy however if you continue then I think you need to protect yourself from sexually transmitted diseases and pregnancy and you know I, um, I'm, I'm for birth control so but I, I, that's that's a real problem, and I fight with that all the time. And, you know, I just want to beat these kids to death sometimes, mm -hmm. or lock them away in a room so they don't have to make the choice. And and love is not involved in any of this for the most part. It's just one of those things. Um, my dealings with AIDS patients. I've had uh, three patients who are now dead. I have one patient that. Um, is HIV positive with no symptoms of the disease and 
it's a difficult struggle. Philadelphia has a good support system for um, the AIDS patients or HIV positive patients. If they choose to accept it, a lot of them will not. Um, a lot of uh, HIV infected um, men are still having unprotected intercourse with friends and are not sharing the fact that they have HIV, that, that, that they are HIV positive. So you know, again, the disease is being spread. The gay community is doing everything that they can to uh, educate them and to prevent that, but it's not really happening. Yes? My understanding, we can, we can go back a little bit, whenever there was the, the real threat of, of syphilis. It, it was treated a lot differently than AIDS. I mean, the people who had syphilis, they had to, they, they were identified and they had to reveal their contacts and it was traced out and done all that because it was considered a national health menace. AIDS is a lot more deadly, and yet we can't do, we're told we can't do those things, and it seems like the difference is political. It has nothing to do with medical. I mean, the medical personnel understand it is a more serious threat. So I, I guess what I'm asking you is, how much do you feel constrained? I mean, I, it's my understanding that it's tougher for people to try and be good doctors. I mean, they, they feel it's tougher for them to do their jobs because of the political aspect. It's, they're feeling more, more hamstrung all the time. That's, that's absolutely true. Uh, the, the problem uh, of HIV disease uh, is a very serious problem that has been dealt with in a uh, public relations, political, hysterical fashion, as opposed to a, uh, a medical, appropriately medical fashion. Uh, the HIV positivity is uh, considered a disability and uh, not a, uh, a disease, and consequently, you can't discriminate against people who are HIV positive. Now, granted, uh, you know it's not infective except in certain fashions. You can't catch it from uh, shaking hands or if they sneeze on you or from the toilet seat. Uh, there, are a few, there are only a few ways that uh, you, you, can, uh, you can get it. You can get it from a blood transfusion, you can get it from sharing dirty needles, and you can get it from uh, unprotected uh, sexual intercourse. And those are the ways that, those are the demonstrated ways that it's been uh, uh, it's been spread, and the fact that uh, I don't think I've ever proved that uh, you can get it from kissing anybody either. Although there's uh, certainly the virus uh, is in saliva, but it takes a lot of uh, the HIV uh, takes a lot of that virus uh, to infect a person. But yes, it has been politicized because it was first associated with a politically with a particular political group, and. Uh, Therefore, with a very strong lobby, uh, it's gotten politicized. And when it became evident that it was in other groups of people uh, who don't have political uh, clout, it's nonetheless still a political uh, disease. Uh, the gay community, uh, you know, if it had turned up in uh, only in drug abusers uh, to begin with, I don't think that there would be any uh, question that it would be dealt with in a different public health fashion than uh, if it had, since it showed up in the uh, homosexual community first. Because uh, drug abusers don't have a lobby. You know, nobody, uh, uh, nobody goes down and marches uh, or writes a congressman and says, you know, we're drug abusers 
we're, we're infected with this deadly disease and uh, we don't think it's fair that we're discriminated against. So that's, yes, it's, it's a problem from a public health point of view uh, in those terms. But it is not as uh, infective as uh, one might think. It's certainly nowhere near as infective as uh, hepatitis. The problem is that not everybody dies if they get hepatitis, but uh, if you're HIV positive, the chances are that uh, if you live long enough, you'll die related to that uh, particular disease. In related to this, is, I understand what you're saying as far as the way it is usually transmitted, but it's my understanding that we still are not 100% sure of all the ways that it is and is not transmitted, for instance. It was reported in the, in the Lancet. There was a, a woman with a, a paraplegic husband. He was paralyzed from the waist down. There was an opportunity for sexual intercourse. He had AIDS. I think he'd earlier gotten it from a blood transfusion. She got it from him. And it wasn't through sexual intercourse. It was through, I think, extended like French kissing. Okay. I mean, that, that type of thing. It's, it's, it's possible, but it's not nearly as infective as... Uh, as one would think. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't need to be careful if you're dealing with patients that have AIDS. And we deal, in fact, we deal with every patient the same way. You don't touch people without gloves on. Uh, and that's sort of a, I find that to be distressing because you expect, your patient expects that uh, part of the compassion and caring that you have for them is that you'll touch them. I should correct that. We don't touch open wounds. I mean, I don't go in and see my patients with gloves on. Well, but that's it's, ex it's expected in the uh, universal precautions uh, thing. If you ever have the chance of getting any contact with any blood or bodily fluids exactly. uh, from that's a patient, different. that uh, you're going to get, uh, that you should wear gloves. Well, yeah, and even, um, I remember the first time my dentist came at me with this huge mask. It's funny, John. <laughs> I, I perfectly understood because how else can you protect yourself? But it's, it was kind of sad for me. <laughs> yeah. I had a patient recently have a heart attack in my office, and we called fire rescue, and they came out, and one of the uh, EMTs did not have gloves on. So I said to him, um, and he's drawing blood. So I said, uh, you don't have gloves on. I think you need to put a pair of gloves on. And he said, you don't think I'm going to get AIDS from this little old lady, do you? And I said, no, I'm concerned about the lady getting AIDS from you. You know, I thought right. that's part of his job yeah. is to protect himself as well as protect yeah, my patient. And he said he's, you know, he's worked in North Philly, but he's been tested negative for HIV. You know, he gets tested every every six months. I said, well, I don't know the last time you've been tested. I don't know where who you've been with in the last yeah. six months. So it's interesting because I'm an EMT, and the ambulance in the front of the ambulance has a big sign that says "Put your gloves on." Mm -hmm. And when we were in class, they said, no matter what you do, no matter where you're going. Always wear your gloves, no matter what the call is. You just put them on when you're in, you know, in the ambulance on the way. Just make it a habit. Mm -hmm. And if a patient complains, you just say, "I'm protecting you," so mm -hmm. they can't complain. And I'm sure you don't have patients complain about it. But in my office, on a one-to-one -one with my patients, unless I'm doing something invasive, if I'm drawing blood or suturing a wound or doing wound care of any type, I don't wear gloves. I mean, that would really, that'd be tough. I know, but I, I don't either. But uh, tough for me. they expect that, uh, you know, it's expected that part of the universal precautions is you won't do anything uh, you know, without putting gloves. I think that, uh, you know, do you need to quarantine patients with AIDS? 
Not really, because uh, uh, they're 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 not infected. Uh, there are there are people who uh, uh, who have AIDS, and you walk you walk down the street, and there are a lot of people. Well, one out of every 200 or 250 uh, college students is HIV positive. So if you get a group of, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't know how big the student body here is, and I would expect that uh, they don't take in, uh, you know, do risk-taking behaviors. But uh, you know, if you go to, uh, if you happen to go to a concert at the Spectrum or something like that, when they get, uh, you know, there's 17,000 seats, and when they fill the floor, it's like 23,000. So that, uh, you know, if you, if you go to a Grateful Dead concert, uh, or Guns N' Roses, <laughs> real dirty. No, uh, but if you, if you go to a if you go to a, a concert like that, then you look around and there will be uh, you know there'll be ten people sure. in there that have uh, uh, that are HIV positive. Now it's it's easy to see when people are dying of AIDS. That's different. They look sick. I mean, you probably saw in the news that uh, that girl that uh, got AIDS from her dentist. Um, you know she looks sick, but when it was first uh, diagnosed, uh, and her pictures were in People magazine and that sort of stuff, uh, she didn't look the slightest bit ill. When they're, when they're terminally ill, they're terminally ill. But uh, until they get sick, people with uh, HIV infection uh, look perfectly fine. She was getting tests when urgent was uh, probably disclosure of uh, yeah. healthcare personnel. Yeah, she thinks, thinks that... What, uh, what, what do you feel about that? <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's absolutely the most ridiculous, well, one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. Um, I, don't, I don't get the New England Journal of Medicine, but I understand that there was an article in it in the last uh, week or so where somebody calculated what the risk of getting uh, AIDS is. I think it was, I, I, I'm not sure the numbers were reported to me, that the chance is about 1 in 82,000 for every hour of operation. If your doctor is HIV positive, that's the chance of getting AIDS from your doctor. So in a two-hour two operation, your chance is about one in 40,000 if your doctor's HIV positive to begin with. So the chances, uh, it was reported another way, the chances of HIV infection from your doctor are about the same as getting hit by a car on the way to see the doctor. And you know, people don't worry about that. The, the problem is that no matter how many tests and what sensitive tests you do for HIV infection, there will be false positives. And let's not talk about the false negatives because it's a different different issue. But there will be false positives with the uh, the radio amino acid, the ELISA test. Uh, there will be a false positive. There will be a few uh, false positive Western blots, which is supposed to be the most sensitive test. Now, a few physicians will test positive for both of those who are not really infected. And you're going to say, well, you know, you're uh, Sorry, you can't do invasive things. Um, you know, sort of take my take my life away. Uh, and if I live 30 years and it turns out that uh, I didn't have HIV infection, then uh, you'll say, well, sorry. Uh, you know, as long as there is uh, a very very low risk of uh, getting a disease from your doctor, uh, there's no reason that all doctors ought to be tested. Should the general public be tested? We're not allowed to test yeah. patients without written permission. And the lab that we use, the outside lab that we use, will not accept HIV test if it comes in with a name. It has to be sent under number only. They will not test it under a name. And that's obviously to protect the patient. If 
they want insurance or whatever. The last patient that I had, that came into my office who I diagnosed with AIDS, he had an oral candidiasis and he had a bilateral pneumonia even before I did the x-ray. I asked if he was in a high-risk group for AIDS and I explained to him what that meant. He denied it. I said, all right, and did a chest x-ray and it, the chest x-ray was typical for the type of pneumonia that AIDS patients get. And again, I asked him, he said, no, but he said, recently I've been to a urologist and have had some tests done for venereal disease. So I got his permission and called the urologist, and of course HIV was one of the tests that was done, and indeed it was positive, and the urologist had gotten that information that very day and was going to be in touch with him. And, you know, he lied to me. Um, you know, I, I didn't let anybody draw blood in the office. I would, if I suspected, I'd draw it myself. I don't put my... Uh, uh, lab techs at risk or anything. So, but you know, he lied to me about his his behavior. There's a, a case I think that's a more difficult. Been debating a lot about whether to disclose little children who have uh, who are HIV positive in schools, because there um, you can you can be playing on the playground and cut yourself and hit. Somebody who's also got a cut. I mean, it's rare, but it could. The kids bite. I yeah, think it, yeah, I think it well, should be disclosed. Yeah. I feel pretty strong about what's that. Your, what's your view on that? I think it should be disclosed whether the teacher knows it. I don't know that the teacher knows, needs to know it, but I think it has to be on record in the school, maybe in the principal's office lot, but I think somebody needs to know that. It's a different set of problems if you're uh, a child than if you're an adult, because children are expected to do children behavior. And children behavior is to bite and kick and scratch and that sort of stuff, and uh, that's a that's a difficult problem for which there is really uh, uh, not a good answer. But yeah, it's not fair to the patients or to the children and the families of uh, who are not infected to have their kid be put at risk uh, by an HIV child who will uh, who may do things that are normal for a kid to do. You can expect an adult who is, knows he's HIV positive to take uh, precautions to see that they don't transmit the disease. But you can't expect, I mean, whether or not they will or not, they, they, may, they may not, they probably won't, but you, you have to expect that an adult uh, can do it, whereas a kid absolutely can't. And now using AZT, AZT is used immediately if you've been exposed to the virus, whether you're HIV positive or not. It's been done with a dirty needle stick. And they discontinued the study because it was more advantageous to take the AZT than not. The article I read uh, about this particular school in England, it sounded wonderful. It sounded too good to be true. They had alerted the school and the parents, and they'd all agreed that it was okay to have you know Peter play, and that because they all knew and they were all alerted, they, the kids all respected him and promised not to be rough around him. I mean, it, it sounded wonderful. I, it's hard to believe that it could be so agreeable. It's fairly, a fairly enlightened point of view. Tell them about your yeah. experience sure. in London. Sure. 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 Okay. More so easy to shun. Yeah, yeah. But there, that's, it's a big public health problem. When I was in England in 80, 82, yeah. I guess, 83, uh, there was a patient who uh, wasn't sure he wanted me to operate on him because I was in the United States and they had AIDS in the United States. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The American disease. Yeah. Uh, related to this, I there was a, also recently in the news someone with who was HIV positive who went for cosmetic surgery and didn't tell the surgeon that she was and, and 
surgeon contracted AIDS. Okay, and we picked it up from her. I mean, this, this was some time ago. So, should there be disclosure of, of all people that, that, that I mean, should, do you feel you have a right to know as a doctor whether any of your patients have it? I think that uh, I have the same right to know <clears throat> that, uh, you know, that they do. But the problem is that you can be infected for, it may take up to six months uh, from infection to seropositivity in order or to, more. Or, yeah, or more, to, uh, to know that you're infected. I think that the best way to deal with it is to uh, try to cut down on the risk-taking behavior. And uh, if people are in a high-risk group, depending upon their disease that needs to be treated, uh, to test them uh, at, at that point. If they're in a high-risk group, they probably ought to be tested anyway. But uh, <clears throat> you'd, hate, you'd hate to do something to a person who had a, uh, a very low chance of surviving you know, a long period of time uh, if they were HIV positive. It's like we don't do, uh, pretty much don't do coronary artery bypass surgery on people that have AIDS, although we'll do it on people that have HIV positive. Mm -hmm. If an uh, IV drug abuser needs a valve replaced because they've gotten infected, we're, if they have any symptoms that they actually have AIDS, then we're much less likely to uh, agree to do the operation than uh, if they're only HIV positive because they may live a long time and may, some of them get to be useful individuals, although most, unfortunately, most drug abusers who have valve infections and have their valves replaced do go back to uh, taking drugs in the future because their, their social things haven't changed, their psychological things haven't changed. And all it is is they've just uh, to get them through an acute crisis. So can, can the courts get involved? And you say about decisions being made to not give treatment. Can you are you subject to litigation at that point, or can the courts well, get involved in order you to, to do that? They've uh, they've already made a rule in New Jersey that you can't refuse to treat uh, an HIV positive person or maybe this person with AIDS without. Uh, unless there's uh, some real reason that you can't do it, if you're not qualified or something like that. Uh, it's a 